Good evening, everyone. Thank you for joining us online audience. And thank you for those of you who are here in person. Uh, we're here to talk about the 28th Jack Reacher. Wow. I can still remember your brother wandering into the store with Killing Floor, looking kind of modest. And um, who knew, you know, that it would be the start of such a long adventure. Yeah, I mean, that was a while ago. There's actually a picture of him hanging up just up there, look, looking uh, considerably more youthful than he does now. But <laughs> He and I were both considerably <laughs> more youthful back then. I have Actually, I have a photo of him standing in front of um, a whole wall of killing floor, but I couldn't find it. I was going to send it around. But um, anyway, you know, as things, as things work out, um, people don't always continue with producing something and so we're here tonight to talk about that this is the last collaboration between Andrew and Lee and Lee will now sorry Andrew will now be going forward uh, with a contract to write four more Jack Reachers on his own without Lee well, that's right, and you know, thank you to all of you because if you guys didn't buy them, uh, I wouldn't be able to write them. So uh, you know, your support is really appreciated, and it's a very strange moment because mm -hmm. we've kind of gone through two big changes. You know, one change when Lee asked me to to start writing with him and get involved with the the, the Reacher books, and uh, that was a big big thing to uh, come to terms with. Big change in my life, and then now that he's uh, stepping aside, it's another big change. So uh, you know, it's a lot to come to terms with. So you know, the most important thing really is, you know, that Reacher is continuing. That's that's the goal. So uh, you know, I hope that we can keep him going for it for many years to come. Well, at least 32, <laughs> 32 <laughs> Reachers we know about for sure. Now you might wonder how it is that two brothers can write together without killing each other, and. Um, and the truth is that Andrew, uh, well, it's your story, but Andrew is so much younger than Lee that they're, it's almost more like father and son than it is like brothers, isn't it? It's true. And I mean, Lee isn't always necessarily too happy to hear that, but often we do get mistaken for, for father and son. And I think that, you know, even though obviously I can't resist, you know, making the most of that. Um, <laughs> There is, an, there is a really quite important point there, which is that due to that age difference, um, by the time I was able to kind of walk and talk, Lee was already grown up and out of the house. And so a lot of that stuff you get, I don't know if you have any brothers or sisters, but you know how it can be really annoying, you're breaking each other's toys, you're getting on each other's nerves, you know. There was none of that for us because of that age difference. So when he, you know, I, I kind of, grew up independently you know when he was growing up he felt he said many times he felt like he was a changeling he really believed that his our parents must have brought home the wrong baby from the hospital because he was completely different from the rest of our family yeah. and I felt the same thing but of course I didn't know but he felt that because he never told me and so he would come back sometimes to visit and see me and realize well wait a minute maybe I am part of this family after all because there's another person here who's just like me and um, actually it was just earlier today I was talking to somebody and something occurred to me and that was that <clears throat> when I was a little kid I would be living my life I would have various problems every now and again this tall stranger would swoop in he would put the problem right and then he would leave again <laughs> 
Does that like sound shame. like anybody we know? No. <laughs> it's such a classic American yeah. Western form. I, it just cracks me up that it's two, it's two English guys from Birmingham, England, who are actually writing what is right at the moment, kind of the quintessential American quest novel. And it's really kind of a Western... Um, I mean, Shane is the first, you, you probably wouldn't know since you're quite young what I'm talking about when I talk about Shane, but for any of you who couldn't remember when that movie came out and Jack Palance was, you know, the man in black and he was there, he was going to come into town and ruin the town and, you know, Shane rides in and he kind of romances the woman and he saves the town from the evil guy and then when it's all over he rides away and the little boy is going, Shane, Shane, you know, don't go, but so it's like Reacher, rides in on the bus, kind of romances somebody, maybe, you know, cleans up whatever the thing is, and then off he goes on the bus, you know, and that's it. Yeah, and that's, you know, that's fundamental. I think there are two really key points there. Yeah. And, you know, one of them is, I think, to really see something for what it is, having, looking at it through a stranger's eyes, through a foreigner's eyes, mm -hmm. is really useful, you know. Tasha, my wife at the back, who's American, she'll come to England and she'll say to me, well, what on earth are these weird people doing these things for? And I wouldn't have even noticed that it was weird because I grew up with it, you know? You need to see something through a foreigner's eyes sometimes to really see it for what it is. And the other thing is that Reacher is part of that really almost eternal tradition. He's a sort of eternal archetype, the knight errant mm -hmm. who is cast loose to, you know, he's cast out of the military. He has to wander the land. He has to redeem himself. And he does that by righting wrongs wherever he finds them. And the really critical part, I think the most important part is the fact that he leaves, right? Mm -hmm. Because what if he didn't? You know, re who doesn't want the tall, handsome stranger to arrive in town and right their wrongs? But what if he moved in next door. What are you going to do? Are you going to feel obliged to mow his lawn every week for the rest of your life? Are you going to have to pay for his coffee? You know, you, it would be a disaster. It would change the dynamic completely. He has to do what needs to be done, however it needs to be done, and then he has to leave. And the leaving is absolutely critical. And, you know, reaches now in the 21st century so he's catching a greyhound or he's hitchhiking you know it doesn't matter in the old days it would have been a horse or a stagecoach it doesn't matter the fact is he leaves and that's what we need him to do totally i mean the quest is one of the oldest forms of storytelling in you know the old knights used to go out looking for dragons to slay right or maidens to rescue and basically that's what reacher is doing i've always thought I think it's the third one where he's walking down the street in Chicago and the guy comes out of the dry cleaners, you know, and, and Reacher just steps right into it, you know. Um, it's just a classic. That's right, and that's an interesting point because, you know, any any book of on along these lines, you have to somehow find a way of introducing the character into the conspiracy. Right. You know, and we always feel like the audience will probably give you one pass. You know, there's going to be a bit of a coincidence. It happened to be that street that Reacher was walking down at the very moment that the bad guys were there. You know, so you can maybe get one pass that, you know, why is it that every little town Reacher goes to, there's some huge conspiracy taking place that no one else has noticed, you know? <laughs> or, you know, so... so you can get away with it maybe once in a book because, in a way, people want it because they actually do want the story to begin. But you can't do that too many times. But that was a great example. Yeah, Reacher's just walking past the dry cleaners just as the woman is coming out when she's about to get kidnapped. Right. Um, and I wanted to point out, this is last year's book, Better Off Dead. Um, and it takes place in here in Arizona. And, you know, Reacher... Um, 
for various reasons. He's ridden the bus, but he can't actually ride the bus into the small Arizona town because it's not a bus stop. So he has to walk. So this is one where Reacher walks towards trouble, but amazingly, in yet another corrupt small American town. Um, you know, I love it. Um, but but there's, this is a real Western in most respects. And if you have not, anybody watching this who hasn't actually read a Reacher um, and you like Westerns, Better Off Dead might be, you can start anywhere in the series. That's one of the beauties of the design. Uh, because there's not a large cast of characters that comes with him because he just gets onto the bus or whatever it is. Sometimes he hitchhikes, doesn't he? In fact, he's hitchhiking, hitchhiking on this one, which is why he gets dropped off. It wasn't the bus. It was the hitchhiking. Exactly. This I one, forgot. Yeah, this one he's hitchhiking, which right. is, you know, and it, 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 he refers to it a few times because the series has been going a long time now, more than a quarter of a century, and some things change over time. You know, when I was a kid, it was a lot easier to hitchhike around. You know, everybody said that you shouldn't do it, but we used to do it anyway. But now, you know, it's not even so much that it's bad for the hitchhiker. The drivers don't want to stop, you know. They see someone six foot five, 250 pounds standing by the side of the road. Are they stopping? Hell no. And so, you know, that's something that we've got to... Try, you know, treat a little bit more carefully now, and that. But you know, we we found a way with 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 Better Off Dead to make it work. And we, something with Reacher, you know, he's got. The, there are certain things about Reacher that never change, and one of them is that he has just this single-minded determination. He always moves forward. He never goes back. And uh, so, in this book, he, you know, the idea is that he's hitchhiking. The guy who's giving him a ride. There's a reason that he needs to stop and turn around and go back. And he says to Reacher, "Yeah, you know, you." welcome to stay in the car. You don't have to get out, but I'm going back the way we've been, and Reacher's not interested, because to Reacher, uh, you know, you never, you know, you, you, you always maintain that forward momentum. Never so he, go back. Yeah. Right. <laughs> You'd never go back. That's right, the second movie. Um, so he... Um, he, d he gets out of the car and he continues walking. And a lot of people ask, you know, how, where does it, how do you start a Reacher book? Where do the ideas come from? And what we generally do is we try to find just an, a sense of it. Maybe it might be a first line. It might be a, a vi an image. And in this particular book, it was the image. I, we had this idea that you've got this huge desert, unbroken landscape. Only thing you can see is one tree. There's just one stunted tree growing. And for some reason, and a jeep has crashed into that tree. So, you know, it implies questions, doesn't it? Why, who was driving the jeep? Why did it crash? What were they doing? And so that really kicks the narrative into gear. So Reacher goes to investigate because he wants to know who was driving the jeep and why did they crash. And uh, he's not too happy when the person who had been driving it pulls a gun on him. You know, and things, uh, things unfold from there. Well, he's a person who, thanks to his army training and probably his own personality, is imbued with situational awareness. And other people might just think, oh, look, there's a Jeep over there, you know, who cares, and walk on. But that's not Reacher. Same thing with the dry cleaning moment. You know, somebody else might have just, like, stepped around the eruption out of the dry cleaning store, you know, if they're on the pavement, cross the street, move on. But he doesn't do that. And I do think, you know, that... Um, so... This book, I think, um, very appropriately, because this is the exit for Lee, um, takes Reacher back 
to his time in the army. We've been there a couple of times in at least at least twice, maybe more, um, in Reacher's army career, and we know that he was a major at some point in the MP, but in this book, he's been busted down um, because he's not very good at following orders. But I do, I really do like that, um, that you've decided to go back to the roots, so to speak, and, um, you know, talk about his life there, because all of that contributed to who Reacher is, the Reacher and Killing Florin and the other novels that didn't take place in the past. Absolutely. And, um, you know, when, when we decided to make this one a, a prequel when he, when he was still in the army, really, the, I, I, at the time, the thing I was aware of was that when we do things like this, people say to us, you know, we really love those ones and he's in the army. We want more of them. So um, we hadn't done one together, so we thought it's time that we do that. But actually, recently, you know, really reflecting on the facts, it's really, it, it, going into this book, I knew that it would be the last one where I was, you know, co when I was working with my brother, um, but we still had a job to do. We had to get it. We had to. We had to write the book. So I didn't let it distract me too much. But since the book has been finished and we've been waiting for it to be released, I've been thinking about it more. You know, what is it going to be like? You know, writing without him. And um, I guess also there was a way in which you know, knowing somewhere in the back of our minds kind of subliminally this was the last one we were doing together that um we i think we there was a sort of instinctive thing there that you know Reacher in the army is so significant in informing him as a character. And the other thing that we try to do, you know, one of the things people often talk about in long-running series in particular is character development, you know. And, you know, Reacher and Lee, you know, Lee's vision really for him was he actually didn't want him to develop. It was counterintuitive. It wasn't what you were supposed to do. If you go to school to learn how to write books, they're going to tell you this is wrong. But Lee didn't want him to change, and I don't want him to change because we love him as he is, right? We don't want him to suddenly start going to Home Depot to pick out the best lawnmower. You know, we don't want him going to counseling to get in touch with his feelings. We want him doing what he does. And so we can't really move him forward because that would be a bit of a betrayal. You know, no one wants that. But what we can do through the prequels is we can reverse that process and we can show him a little bit younger, a little bit more naive, a little bit more, well, a little bit less cynical, perhaps. And that's something that's that's fun to play with. And um, we realized, so when we decided, yeah, we want to do a prequel, and then the question is, well, where do you slot that in? Because there have been some other ones, so you've got to make sure that it, it, it fits logically into the progression. And, and um, I thought it was very interesting the way that Lee handled the thing in the book, I think it was The Enemy, where Reacher gets bumped back down from Major to Captain. I thought that was really fascinating. And I thought that would be the place to pick it up because if that's happened to you, you've been bumped down. This is a you know, a really big deal. How do you how do you deal with it? And how do the people you work with deal with it? You know, Reach is assigned to a new unit essentially in disgrace. You know, he's gonna be given the worst jobs. He's gonna be given the assignments that no one else wants. So um, what, that, what might those assignments be and how would he handle them? And that really is a big part of the, uh, the motivation and the, and the drama for uh, what happens in The Secret. So in a, in a series like this that has gone on for so long, time is kind of blurry, right? Um, because, you know, we, 
it's been a lot of years, but Reacher, he can't get much older um, because he might then not even be able physically to do the kinds of things he has. So we all have to kind of scrub the idea of writing in real time and just assume, you know, he's... But So when you go backwards, even though we're way further forward, although not really because we've all pretended it all happens, you know, week to week or something, uh, how far back did you go? There's a reason I'm asking. How? Where are we roughly in time, if you have to pick a time? Yeah, well, this particular book is 1992. Okay. Um, and so, you know, partly because I wanted it to lead on from his demotion. But right. it also refers to things that happened in 1969. So there was a lot of stuff yeah. we had to do to make sure that we weren't accidentally having him texting people or people using exactly, cell phones. Exactly, but that was going to yeah. be my point yeah. is that mm -hmm. it's really a break for the author to be able to go back before technology. You know, you don't have to worry about cell phones. You don't have to worry about texting. You don't have to worry about, you know, people tracking you on your phones. You don't have to facial recognition, you know, all that stuff. It's all in the past. But, you know, it's, it's, it's critical because we, there was a particular scene in the book where it's really important that a telephone call gets made at the end of the scene. And so I picked a location where it was feasible that there would be a landline. And one of my editors was saying, well, I don't really like that location. Why don't you put it such and such a place? I was saying, because there couldn't be a phone there. And she was saying, well, you know, like, couldn't they use the cell phone? And then it's like, oh, no, 1992, can't do that. So it was a whole new set of disciplines for us to it's a whole set of constraints. But the idea of the character aging is, is, a, great, is a great one because um, you've really got two choices. If, you know, when you start off <clears throat> writing books about a character, you hope that it will turn into a long-running series. You know, back when Lee wrote Killing Floor, of course he hoped that it would turn into this long-running thing. But he had no way of knowing whether it would or not. It seems like hubris to assume that it will. You know, you're dooming yourself if you do that. And so you make some decisions that perhaps with hindsight you wouldn't have done. So he was specific. Anybody that's read the particular books in question will know that Reacher's birth, the year of his birth is, is specified. His birth date is specified, we can all figure out how old he's supposed to be, right? And so do we want him to continue aging in real time? The two options are either let him do that or just pretend it's not happening. And the thing is, you know, it boils down, I can do it either way, but it boils down to what do we think readers want? Our job is to give the readers what they want. And do readers want, I mean, you tell me, do you want to see Reacher lining up collecting his pension? You know, do you want to see him at the pharmacy getting his pills for his arthritis? You know, because <laughs> we can write that if that's what you want. But it seems to me that it's going to be a lot more fun to see Reacher rather than going to the pharmacy to see him getting on the Greyhound and going off re ready for his next right, adventure. Without an arthritic knee slowing him down or whatever, or, you know, prescription glasses or whatever it is. Actually, we're going to, you know, my Michael Conley will be with us on November the 9th, and we are moving from the bookstore to a church right up Indian School Road at Indian School in Miller, and which we're trying out as a, as a venue, and I think it'll be interesting. But Michael made a decision to age Harry Bosch in real time, with the result that Harry no longer, you know, can actually serve in the LAPD. There are real consequences to deciding on the real time thing, but you're right, when you start out, you know, there's a, somebody told me years ago, and I can't remember, but I think it was a mystery that was built around sports. I think it might have been golf. And the author, there was a, you know, prize money involved now, but it wasn't specific. 
And I said, you know, why didn't you mention how much the prize was? And he said, the thing that will age a book the fastest is if you put in money, because, you know, it changes in value so rapidly. And what seems like a giant purse of maybe $50,000, you know, whatever, you know, would just be, and, and, and the stakes then would be so low for a more modern reader that they would wonder why was there even a crime, right? Exactly. You see that in movies too, don't you? There'll be a heist movie from the 60s where somebody's trying to steal $1,000. I you know. know. And the other part, I wish I could remember the name of it. There's one really great heist movie, and the whole thing depends on timing, but it depends on what is it like, nine guys all getting to a phone box at the same moment and making their making their call. And it's hilarious to watch it now. It's almost like comedy, you know. But at the time you watched it, it was very suspenseful, and you really wondered, can they possibly all, you know, and, and, of course, the interruption was in one of the boxes, there was some guy already there making a call, and he wasn't about to hang up and let our potential bad guy, or not bad guys, in heist novels, the bad guys are actually the good guys, right? They're really sort of fun. Anyway, technology has truly changed, but if you're back in the 1990s, you don't have as much of that to deal with. Um, so in the in the cast here, and it changes with every book, um, you have, tell us about the opening. We never want to spoil the ending, but there's um, interesting stuff happening at the beginning to kick this off. Yeah, I really, I really enjoyed the opening of this book. Um, you know, openings are normally both the hardest part to write and often the most fun because you, you're, 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 it's like you're, you're trapped in a small room and you're opening the doors and you're getting out and you can go anywhere. And so... With the opening of this book, we see a, there's a guy, he's in his hospital bed. It's actually in Chicago. He's had a horrendous heart attack. He's, 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 he's an oldish fellow. He's had a terrible heart attack. He wasn't expected to survive, except that he did. He beat the odds. He got better. And he's, he's recovering, and uh, he's got to know the hospital. He's been there long enough. He knows the routines and the rhythms of the hospital. And it's after lunch, so he knows he's got a few hours where he can just have a nice nap. No one's going to come and disturb him. Only two people do come and disturb him. And they disturb him in such a way that it ends up with him falling out of the window and falling to his death on the sidewalk. It's so. almost like Putin came to visit. I know. It's, yeah, in it fact, really is. In, yeah. in fact, today in the news, uh, I don't know if you saw this, a woman who had been criticizing the war in Ukraine fell out of a tree and died. There's been, I love the actual verb for this is defenestration. It's one of my favorite words that you hardly ever get to use it. But there's a remarkable number of Defenestrated victims, um, you know, in, in yeah. contemporary Russia. Yeah, and the CIA had a term for it. They call it assassination by purported suicide. Okay, that works, but I like defenestration better because you can show off multiple signals. You know. But anyway, yeah, your your poor guy is basically defenestrated from the hospital window. But, of course, you as the reader don't have any idea why. You know, and you're not going to tell us that for a long time. We're not. not, And not here tonight at all, right? <laughs> Definitely not. But what I will say is that, um, you know, what we wanted to do was set up effectively a kind of cat and mouse mm. situation. We want to, you know, reach his back in the army, so he's an investigator. So he needs some crimes to investigate. So we give him some. Yeah, and, and uh, you know what? You're not at all being um, sexist here because the two, the two people who appear in the hospital room are both women doesn't always have to be a guy who's the dragon. 
And in fact, you know, we actually, we, we didn't plan this because as you probably know with Reacher books, we don't set out the, at the beginning and write an outline or a plan. We, we let the story evolve as we go. So we didn't set out at the beginning to say, oh, let's have, you know, let's, let's feature women in this way. But it just, it just emerged. But it actually made absolute sense for how for the requirements of the story. And it taps into the idea that um, a lot of the time women are underestimated. And a lot of the time that leads to them having a, 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 you know, a much worse lot in life than they should have. But sometimes they're able to twist that on their head and get away with the stuff because they weren't expected. It wasn't expected that a woman would do this. So uh, we, we, had, we had some fun playing with that. Right. So that's the opener, and then you've got to wonder, why is Reacher even going to be involved with a guy that falls out the window or jumps or whatever? Um, and that's why you're going to read the book, right? You're going to find out. Um, and there's some other interesting characters. I did ask Andrew um, at some point this weekend, because we've been out since Saturday having dinner and doing other fun stuff, um, if he always had the particular bad actor in mind from, you know, because I know that they don't write with a plan, but I wondered if the particular bad actor that we that we get to at the end, the big dragon, uh, was always there, was always in your mind from the beginning, and you said it was. It, it absolutely was, because we don't plan in the sense that we say, in chapter one, this will happen, in chapter two, that will happen. Mm -hmm. But what I do like to do is have an idea of who the villain is, and I like to know why they're doing the things that they're doing. Right. Because I think that if you don't have a credible vi villain, you know, if the reasons for the bad behavior are not absolutely rock solid, then there's no foundation for the book. You know, Reacher himself is this huge, strong, skilled, capable person who can overcome pretty much anything. You have to give him an adversary who is worthy. And so if you don't have a really sound idea of who that adversary is and why they're doing what they're doing, the thing doesn't hold up. Well, but that's the whole structure of a thriller. I mean, a thriller rises and falls on the villain, not necessarily on the protagonist. If you don't have a worthy adversary, the stakes aren't going to be high enough. And, um, you know, really, you have to put more energy. I mean, think about Silence of the Lambs. Clarice Starling's okay, but, you know, it's not really about Clarice Starling. It's really, you know. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, and so um, that is always, the, for me anyway, the, the, the starting right. point. I've often wondered if he started with Hannibal Lecter and then went all around it. I wouldn't be surprised. Yeah. I know. I wouldn't I've, be surprised. We've, we've never had Thomas Harris here. Um, yeah. So I, I've never was able to ask him that question, but I've often wondered, because he's such an amazing villain, you know, to, I wonder if he started started it with the villain. I mean, it would make sense in a way, it you would, know, yeah. and then had to craft um, people to be the villain's adversary instead of starting with Reacher and then having to craft an adversary. It would be the other way around. Yeah. Although, you know, for those for those books, you know, Red Dragon, which was right. just phenomenal. Many uh, people like it better. Yeah, mm -hmm. I think so. It's an interesting book, again, in terms of technology. Right. Because I don't know if you guys are familiar with, with, with Red Dragon. It was the book that introduced Hannibal Lecter. There was an unbelievably chilling creepy villain in that book. And one of the big questions is, how does this villain target his his victims? And um, the way that he did it was based on a technology that 
kind of doesn't really resonate anymore. Right. So, um, you know, if you're of a certain age and you remember these things, then it, it, it works. But, you know, that, that is something that he really pinned, you know, there's a pivotal part of the plot that, that you know, people might not remember or might not, might not, you know, might not resonate with them. But, you know, what Thomas Harris did was he based a lot of the, uh, the villains on real serial killers. He did a lot of research mm -hmm. into um, people that had actually committed these crimes. Horrendous, horrible, awful crimes. Um, and then he, you know, reworked them into the fictitious villains. And I think that's a fascinating thing to do as well, um, you know, because it makes the motivation real and therefore makes the villain worthy enough. Sure. But there was always the thing about the quest novel. If the dragon's a fizzle, then, you know, the right, the knight on the quest, I mean, it's just boring. So, you know, you had to have an excellent dragon. One of the things I've, I've always enjoyed reading the Reacher series is the location. Uh, because we know he, doesn't, he never stays there, right? So we're always going somewhere. And he's been overseas at least, what, three times? He's been to Paris. Where think, else? Yeah, I think he's been to Paris twice and England as well. And England, yeah. okay. But mostly he's, you know, going around the United States. So do you, do you start, or will you be, let me put it this way, let's go forward with the shell thing here, uh, not the wood thing, um, or should. Are you inclined to pick the place first? No, for me, it's always the story first. Okay. I figure out what kind of story I want to tell. And then once I know that... Then you that, find the place. Would, yeah. And, and I never go out looking for a place. Um, I, always think about, I always think about places I've been. And so every, every location that we've used is somewhere that we have been to. We've got a sense of how it feels what it's like and then you know we will know if it has to be a story that's very claustrophobic we'll, we'll have a place in mind if it's going to be a big city which city seems appropriate uh, so yeah it's always story first location second and the, the, the figuring out where is always it's, it kind of taps into w what we feel about research in a way mm -hmm. you know there, there are certain kinds of research that you can do as you go you know they're, they're, they're sort of very specific details you've got to write about a particular gun how many bullets can it hold you want to write about a car what colors did it come in in 1997 you can find these things out very quickly and you move on but other parts of the research like the story like the idea of people falling out of windows how will that apply to a story that to me that has to sit in the back of your mind for a long time for years sometimes percolating away in order for you to really understand what the relevant parts are, which parts are actually important for the story. It's kind of like, say you've got a vineyard at the back of your house. You could go out tonight and you could pick some grapes and you could have some lovely grape juice. But if you want wine, then that has to mature in the barrels for many years. It's like that with research and research applies to location. You can't just pick something at random and say, let's, let's put the book there. You have to remember, yeah, years ago I was in this town and this is how it made me feel. Because it's really the feeling that counts with, with, um, well, with location. Well, it is, but I mean, in the, in the book that, that Lee wrote, where Reacher's, you know, in the subway, remember he's hanging on by his fingernails to the subway car and all. It has to be in New York or some city where there actually is a, you know, yeah. subway line. You can just put it in, you know, exactly. a small town in Arizona. So, um, but I didn't know whether the subway line preceded New York as a location or... 
New York was there, and then the place where bad things could happen could be in the subway. Yeah, I think for me, if if I was writing that book, it would be um, first of all decide on on the if if you knew it needed to take place in a city, what feel did you want, and if New York was the right city, then right. the subway line would would stem from there. Yeah, well, it all has to be credible. Yeah. All right. So you have had um, over the years that I have known you and I have since your very first book, you've written quite a few things on your own so that you didn't step into this as an absolute novice writer, which I think would have been terrifying. So tell us a little bit about your past publishing history. Yeah, you know, I um, I did write, I think I wrote nine books on my own before I, I started working with Lee. And a lot of people will ask, um, so did you always know you wanted to be an author? You know, did, did, did you always want to write books? And a lot of people who, who aren't authors really did. You know, a lot of people back at home will have a little cardboard box full of little books that they wrote when they were kids tied together with string and nice illustrations. And I didn't. I had no idea. It never occurred to me that I might one day be a novelist. Um, but what I knew that I did like doing was telling stories. I just always was obsessed with telling stories. It just seemed like a really good distraction from real life. Um, when I was a little kid, I would be always just making stuff up. And um, my parents, if we would go on, a, go on a long drive, say we were driving to see my grandparents, you know, this was back in the day, you know, there were no car seats, there were no seat belts. You know, the, you know I'd be in the back standing up between the front, and I'd be talking, you know, telling stories as we went. And I didn't realize at the time, but apparently I had this tell. You know, I'd always start off with something that had really happened that day. And then I'd say, and then, suddenly, <laughs> and my parents would think, all right, here we go. Um, so I love telling stories, and it was really useful over the years. You know, you're at school and you haven't done your homework. Well, tell a good enough story and the teachers don't care. Um, it was all going great. I remember being frustrated once. Remember there was a volcano a few years ago, um, and it shut down all the air travel, and I actually couldn't go somewhere because of this volcano. And I was on the phone to somebody saying, yeah, I can't come because there's been a volcano. And I was like, God, why did I never think of this before, you know? It was frustrating. So love telling stories. <clears throat> And uh, as, as I kind of made my way through high school, I came to really love English literature. The school I went to, the teachers were fantastic. They um, would encourage you, they'd introduce you to all these amazing books, all these amazing poems and plays, and they would just let you talk about them. What do you think? What do you think? You know, and you could say, and if, as long as you could justify it and back up your argument, you could come up with any idea you liked. And it was wonderful. You'd look forward to the class because you knew you were going to have an argument with somebody about this book. It was brilliant. So when it came time to go to university, I wanted to do English literature because back then, a little bit different now, but back then in England, it was different to the United States. You had to apply right up front for the major that you wanted to do. You couldn't spend a couple of years at, at college before you decided on your major. So I picked English literature. And all my teachers said to me, Andrew, this is a mistake. <laughs> and, you know, they tried to dress it up in nicer words. But what they really said was, you're just not very good at this, so you really ought to do something else. And, of course, I didn't listen to them. I never listened to anybody that gives me good advice. And so I insisted on doing English literature because I thought it's going to be like high school but bigger and better. And I was so wrong because 
instead of having teachers that were encouraging you to think for yourself and express your own views, there were all these fellows who were internationally renowned professors. And if you disagreed with them, they didn't think, oh, great, let's have a debate about this. They took it as an insult and they were horrified. And it got to the point uh, one day in 1986, I was sitting in a guy's class arguing about uh, there's an obscure Shakespeare play called Timon of Athens. We were arguing about this play and he stood up and he said to me, listen, I am the world's leading authority on this subject and I'm telling you this is the way it is and you can either apologize or you can get out of my class. So no prizes for guessing. <laughs> Still haven't apologized. And... Um, <laughs> so if you're listening <laughs> um, and so I was really miserable I hated doing English literature but the only way to really change tack was to give up well, to, to leave university and come back the following year that's how it works and to my dad that would have looked like giving up it would have looked like and that was just not an option so the only thing I could do the furthest I could get away from English literature was to divide it so that I was doing part English and part drama and the drama was a total revelation because if you like telling stories what better way is there than theatre because the people are there right in front of you acting it out speaking the words unbelievable I loved it spent my every waking minute pretty much either doing the drama course or just working at the university theatre. They had a basically professional grade theatre that you could work in for free. It was amazing. So I loved that. And at the end of the time, we finished our degrees. And you know what it's like? You're doing something because there's a test at the end. You do a certain amount of the syllabus. You do the test, then you have to move on, even if you haven't really finished, even if you want to do more. So at the end of it, we said, six of us said, you know what, rather than get bogged down in the nine to five and the mortgage and all of that, why don't we set up our own theater company? Then we can do everything that we didn't get a chance to finish. So we did, and we thought it would take us about a year to do everything, and it actually took about two years which, you know, isn't bad. We went to the Edinburgh Festival. We had two shows there. We did a national tour. We did everything we set out to do. But what a normal, sensible theatre company does is they alternate between well-known plays that make money and their new experimental stuff, whereas we were just totally self-indulgent. We only did the new experimental stuff. So guess what? You're a theatre company that no one has ever heard of. You're producing plays that no one has ever heard of in a venue that no one has ever heard of. <laughs> After two years, let me tell you, the money supply is wearing pretty thin. So um, at that point, I was just sick of being broke. So I thought I need, I just need to fix the hole in my bank account. So I'll get a regular job just for a little while. And this was pre-internet. So if you want to get a job, you couldn't Google for it. You had to go out and buy the Sunday Times, and you had to look for the for the graduate vacancies. So I did that. I cut out all the ones that I thought I had even the vaguest chance of getting, and I was very, very scientific. I organized them in order of starting salary. <laughs> And I applied for the one that paid the most, and by some you know miracle, I blagged my way into the job, and um, you know that was fine, except that. Instead of bailing after a few months, I accidentally got trapped and I stayed there for 15 years. And um, during that time, couldn't go to the theatre very much because I was always on the road. You know, I'd either buy tickets for a show and not be able to go, or I think, ah, oh, there's no point in buying tickets for that one because I'll never be able to go. And then I was free, but then there's no tickets, so 
couldn't go to the show to the theaters very much so i just read more and it was just one time i was on i was on holiday i was in greece i took a suitcase that was basically a pair of swimming trunks and like eight million books and um I remember thinking, oh, look, all these books, they're all crime fiction, you know. I hadn't, hadn't planned it, hadn't meant to only read, but that was just, I realized that's what I like. And one day, um, I'm reading this book, and it starts out fantastic. You know, the perfect book. You will stay up all night and miss work the next day because you have to read this book. You will miss the stop on the bus. You will not get off the train because you have to keep reading at the beginning anyway, but when I got to the end, it was awful. It was just dreadful. And I remember thinking, well, why did the author do that? He set up this character with all of these op opportunities. Why didn't he follow that through? Oh, he, you know, he had this subplot, he had that subplot. And looking back, that was the day that the die was cast because that's like an itch that you have to scratch. You have to find out if you can do it. Somebody once said to me that the two saddest words in the English language are what if. And I thought, you know, I'm making a decent living here, but I don't want to get to the end of my days and look back and think, well, what if I'd tried to be an author? So I thought I've got to give it a try. And, you know, my brother by this point was already doing it. He was doing well. And I didn't know what to make of that because I was thinking about it kind of statistically. And I thought it's unusual for one out of four brothers to make it, probably even less likely that two out of four can do it, so maybe it's a bad thing. But at the same time, you know, he said to me, right, this is how the business works. This is how you do it. Here's the minefield. This is how you navigate through. And I just thought in the end, just don't overthink it. Give it a try. It'll work or it won't. So um, I decided I needed to quit my job in order to try to be a writer. And the problem with that was I was working for this enormous corporation that was making people, they, they were giving them severance packages. And I thought, okay, so you can either, they can either pay you to work or they can pay you not to work. <laughs> I'm going with option B. But the problem was I was in the one division in this company where they wouldn't give you a severance package. So I said, well, can I move to a division where they will? And they said, no. And I said, well, can I just leave? And I said, sure you can, but we're not giving you any money. So I thought, well, that kind of defeats the purpose. So I thought, well, what I'm going to do is I'm, because at this point, I've been in there for maybe 12, 13 years. I tried hard. I've been conscientious and, and never really saw eye to eye with the management, but I really did try. Never got anywhere. But at this point, I thought, right, I'm going to make such a nuisance of myself that they will see the error of their ways and they'll just think the easiest thing to do is just give the guy some cash, shut him up. And so... The management would show up, they'd say, we've got this problem, here's this issue. And I would think of the stupidest, the most ridiculous idea and suggest it. And the management would be like, oh, that's really great. <laughs> this guy thinks outside the box. You know, so actually for about two years, I became really successful. Uh, I, I got promoted. Honestly, I'm not joking. I had stock options by the time I left that company. And... Um, the, but what happened, and probably because of all these stupid ideas I had, that one division that had previously been the only successful division in the corporation, it started to struggle and have hard times. So they said, okay, fine, you, you, we're going to give severance packages, and yes, you can have one. And um, 
that was the first time I noticed a real kind of characteristic, Barbara, you must have seen this a million times, but authors, you cannot keep us happy, right? Because I tried hard for three years to leave this company. And when they finally said, yeah, you can go, I'm like, what? I can go? You're not going to beg me to stay. You know, you're not going to be like, no, Andrew, we can't live without you, please. They would just like leave your car keys and don't let the door hit you on the way out. And it's like that when we go to a bookstore, because you go to a bookstore, either they have your books and you're like, why have they got my books? Why have they not all sold? Or they don't have your books. And you're like, well, why haven't they got, you know, so yeah, it got to the end. So I did, I did finally leave. I did, yeah. Yeah, because, you know, yeah, I wanted, I wanted to have a hero that had, um, that was very capable, was was able to navigate his way through any situation you threw him into. So you need a credible background. And I was trying to figure out what that would be. And, you know, there were a lot of people that would, for example, have heroes who were detectives. And I thought about that. And the problem was, if you have a detective who works in Scottsdale, Arizona, maybe a homicide detective, how is every book going to begin? It's going to have to be with a murder in Scottsdale, Arizona. And I thought that's going to be a bit restrictive. I want to be able to go, I, I want my guy to be able to go anywhere and get involved in anything. So I thought it needs to be something less defined. So I was trying to figure out what it would be. And again, a lot of people had done books with heroes who were, say, special forces veterans. And the problem with that is there's always going to be someone out there who knows more than you. You know, you say that the color of the boathouse roof in Hereford is, the wrong, is wrong, and you've got your guy from the SAS, and you've just got a million emails telling you about it. So I thought, I don't want something where there are actual facts that I can screw up that will trip people up and pull them out of the narrative. Um, so I thought, well, the easiest thing to do is to come up with a fictitious division. And I knew that in England anyway, if you go past um, a, an embassy <clears throat> or, a, a, or a consulate, the people who do the vis visible security are Royal Marines, right? And in England, the Royal Marines are part of the Navy. So it made sense to me that if they, the Navy does the visible security, they probably do the invisible security too. So I invented this division of Royal Navy intelligence that's responsible for consulates and embassies all over the world. So then I thought, this gives me his background, it gives me his skill set, and it gives me the broadest canvas you can imagine. He can go anywhere in the world and do whatever he wants to do. So um, that was the starting point. Yeah. But you've also you've been in Alabama. Um well remind me. <laughs> yeah, so after I after I did three books about David Trevelyan, the Royal Navy intelligence guy. Then I switched publishers, um, and they wanted me to do something new. So I wrote a standalone, which is the kind of um, ordinary man in extraordinary circumstances set up. The idea being a guy goes to work one day, not thinking it's just an ordinary Monday, but his world falls apart. He's fired, his wife leaves, 
mysterious people start chasing him for some reason and he has to figure out what's going on and how to get out of it. So that was actually a lot of fun, you know. I was kind of grumpy about having to do a standalone. I wanted to keep going with my series, but then I really enjoyed doing the stand the standalone and I wanted to keep going with standalones. But then um for the next book, um I had this idea about a guy who works this is the Birmingham Alabama guy. He was a detective. Uh that was originally going to be a standalone, but the publisher liked it at the time and wanted it to turn into a series. And so um, um, I chose Birmingham, Alabama, because uh, the way the story, that first story, had some, it had some particular requirements, and one of them was that he had to be somewhere where he could have a cabin in the woods near to a reasonably major city. And I'd just been to Birmingham, Alabama, for a book conference, and so I knew that the location worked. And I thought there's probably you know a thousand locations or more in the United States that would work, but here is one that I know will. So why? You know, why question it? And also, I kind of like the symmetry. You know, I was born in Birmingham, England, so it seemed fun to write a book in, say, in Birmingham, Alabama, uh, which was named for Birmingham, England. So I thought, why not do that? And so I was having fun with that. And, you know, somewhat similar to the, what we were saying about Thomas Harris, I wanted to really focus on the villains in those books. And I, would, I became obsessed with the books that had been written by the FBI criminal profilers because you know you have these villains who do in real life unspeakably horrible things and it's very hard to understand why they do that you know it seemed to me these guys probably don't just wake up in the morning give a machiavellian cackle and go out to do bad things right and it's true they do the things they do because they believe in their version of the world based on how their brains are wired this is the only thing they can do. It's the only thing that makes sense. And I was thinking, how can I understand this and how can I communicate this? So having read all of these books, I thought, you know, with people like Robert Harris having done incredible things where the heroes are profilers, don't want to go down that same road, but we could use all that material to inform the villains so that you can have villains that do these seemingly outrageous things. And even though obviously you're never going to sympathize with them because the things are so horrible, you can perhaps at least understand a little bit more about what motivates them. And therefore, if you were the detective trying to stop them, what you might have to do. So I had real fun with that. I did three of those. And then um, I switched. <laughs> there was a corporate restructure. My editor got fired. And the new, you know, new editors very rarely want to pick up a series that other people started. So I started a new series, which is the one with this character who I always call the janitor. He's, um, he, 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 in a way, in my mind anyway, I, I almost see him as a kind of Robin Hood character. You know, he's someone who's anonymous and he works tirelessly to help other people, you know, the little guy who has been, whose, whose case has fallen through the cracks at the courthouse, who's been railroaded by a big corporation, who's got better lawyers, who's been tricked by someone with, with more resources. Um, and the idea was that this guy, he was brought up, his mother had died when he was a baby, he'd been brought up by his father, and his father was a confirmed pacifist. So this guy's method of rebelling was to join the army. And he joined the army and wound up in military intelligence. And after a few tours, he got to the point where he thought, you know what, I really need to mend. I've, I've done my time in green. It's time to leave. I'm going to go back and make, make it up with my dad. So he leaves the army, goes home to find out that his father is dead. And 
it looks to all the world like his father was murdered, but something went wrong with the trial and the person responsible got away with it. So he wants to he wants justice. He wants to find out what happened. So putting his military intelligence skills to use, he gets a job as a janitor at the courthouse because if you're the janitor, you can go anywhere, you can do anything, but no one notices you. And so the idea was that he there'd be a kind of arc that would run over the whole series, which was him finding out what happened to his family. But in each book, there'd be someone who had suffered some egregious wrong that the system had failed, so he was going to put right. And um, I was having real fun with that. And then, you know, my brother threw a spanner in that particular <laughs> works. Well, yeah. You can see that all this is, is um, pretty basic, that you learn a lot of things um, that will be useful in writing the Reachers. And indeed, even in the courthouse, there, was, there were dragons, derby dragons. That's a thing you want to put up there. I love that. That's a great question. The question was, will Andrew Grant write again? And um, yeah, I mean, I absolutely intend to because I was loving writing the the Janitor series. It was it was probably it was one of the most fun things that I've done. And so, if I can figure out a way of, of um, you know, squeezing a few more hours into every day, then I will absolutely write more. I've got, I've got ideas lined up, ready to go, and so I'm hoping that pretty soon I will be able to do that. And sometimes I can't remember for sure which one. Thank you. The microphone off. Thank you, Tasha. Sorry about that. Did you all hear what I said? No, you want to try it again. Lee Child is a pen name. On the actual family name is Grant. So um, Andrew has become Andrew Child for purposes of writing the Reacher books, but his actual name is Andrew Grant. So, um, yeah, yeah. I mean, what what normally happens if if somebody takes over a series? It generally happens after the author's died. You know, the the estate will find somebody that they that's think. That's scary thought. Yeah, <laughs> right. You know, and, and what. Yeah, and what we were doing was was unusual, you know, in that we, we, you know, he's not dead yet, and he had chosen to do this, and I'm his brother. Mm -hmm. And so um, the publisher wanted to just, you know, really reassure readers yeah. that, you know, it's almost like nothing to see here, you know, it's, it's a continuation, it's seamless, it'll be exactly the same as it was before, and they felt that, you know, emphasizing, even though it meant kind of changing to the pen name rather than the real family name, it was a way of emphasizing that family connection and, and reassuring people that everything was going to be the same as it was before. So for those who are wondering, catch us up on what's happening with the Jack Reacher television season two. Yeah, season two. Has everybody seen season one? Did everybody like season one? Excellent. <laughs> um, because season two, season two will be dropping. I don't have a precise date, but it's going to either be end of November or early December. So it is... Which is really good news. Now, unfortunately, for those of you who really loved the 
policeman from Boston, the black policeman from Boston, who I thought was great, or the woman who was the cop in the small southern town. They don't get to, due to the structure of the Reacher books, they don't get to carry forward. I was hoping, I really have to say, I sort of hope that, you know, we'd step out of the design, but it really wouldn't work. It wouldn't. No. Frances Neagley will be coming back. Um, you know, she, actually what they did for season one, anybody who remembers the book, Neagley wasn't actually in in that book, so they they were conscious that people would probably feel more comfortable if there were more recurring characters rather than just Reacher. So they, they actually put Francis Neagley into that first book, and the second season, I think I can think I'm allowed to say it's based on bad luck and trouble. And of course, in that book, Neagley plays a major part. So uh, you will definitely be seeing Neagley again. And uh, I would imagine, although I don't know for sure, I'd imagine that she'll be cropping up in future series as well. Well, you know, the TV people get to decide. Once once they take over, um, they get to choose the casting and, um, and how it develops. But to stay true to the novels, they really can't have repeating characters, maybe her, but, you know. So we all have to be careful not to get too attached, right, to the people in each episode. Yes, sir, did you have a question? So how did we happen upon the uh, Army, U.S. Army MC that's a great question. How did Lee? How did Lee fasten upon the the military police as a background for for Reacher? I guess I've got to break that down into into a couple of parts because um, a lot of it is down to what I was saying earlier about when you're kind of planning the world that you want your character to inhabit. He wanted Reacher to have um, a plausible reason for the skills that he had. And he didn't want those to just be fighting skills. He wanted them to be investigative skills, hence military police rather than just military. Um, he liked the idea of the US military at the particular time, because at the end of the Cold War, the US military reduced in size quite considerably, and quite a lot of career soldiers found themselves out of a job. And he had just been thrown out of his job. And so, you know, th there's an expression out there that you should write what you know. And our version of that is you write what you feel. And Lee, I don't know, is this a family show? I don't know if I can say quite how annoyed Lee felt <laughs> when he was thrown out of work. But he really wanted to take the power of that feeling of, of um, should we say, annoyance at losing his job and feed that into the character. So Reacher um, was also forced out of his job, so therefore, you know, that really informed it a great deal. And I think on top of that, you know, um, our father was, our father and our grandfather were both military, and we grew up um, really, you know, that, that my father never lost that military mindset, and that really informed the way that we, that, that our childhood was shaped. And, and you know, we, when we, if we went on a car trip, um, you know, all my friends, they would drive, they would be going to their grandparents, they would have books in the car, they would have toys, they would have all kinds of stuff. We were allowed nothing that was not in a self-contained container that you could pick up and grab because you may have to abandon your vehicle 
at any moment. You know, that was how my dad thought, you know. You were not allowed, if you were driving somewhere new, you couldn't have directions written out on a piece of paper. You couldn't have a map because those things could get destroyed. You had to have that route memorized. You know, all of those things, the timekeeping, the sense of discipline. And I think, you know, when, when Lee was thinking about how he wanted his character to be, alongside being capable as an investigator and somebody who knew about weapons and strategy and so on, somebody who was angry about having suffered this injustice of losing their job, he also liked that sense of the discipline of, of, a, of an army life. And I guess also the fact that, you know, we are foreigners, we, we, we live in a foreign country, and, and he set Reacher up as someone who had traveled all over the world, that only until Reacher lost his job in the army, the only time that he had regularly spent in the United States was the four years he was at West Point. So that was another way in which he was sort of feeding things that he felt <clears throat> rather than knew into the formation of the character. Patrick, are there any questions from the online audience? Questions from Linda. She asks, in your writing, are you or your brother the driver or the passenger or do you swap roles? Well, thank you, and thank you, Linda. Thank you for tuning in, and that's a great question. So when we're writing together, is Lee the driver, or am I the driver, or do we, do we swap roles? And really, it's been, Lee said something to me the other day that I thought was very interesting, and that was that when we started this collaboration, neither of us knew how it was going to work, and um, we had to figure it out, and he was worried. He had this little doubt that, you know, he's, he's the older brother, I'd like to say the considerably older brother, and... Um, he was worried that if I didn't agree with him, you know, was I going to say, no, Lee, you're talking nonsense? And very qu quickly he learned that absolutely I was going to because this is a job and you don't mess around. You know, you, you, your obligation is to produce the best book you possibly can. So there was no time for any sort of pussyfooting around. It was all about coming up with the best decisions possible. And I don't think it's really possible to say who was who was driving and who was who was in the passenger seat it was absolutely a joint effort from from start to finish um, I mean I did the bulk of the kind of physical work the typing the liaising with the, the the publishers and so on but when it came to thinking about what happens next what will Reacher do what will the bad guys do that was absolutely a joint effort Was I ever in a theater performance? The, the, the kind answer is fortunately not. <laughs> because even though I absolutely love the theater, I am the world's worst actor. I absolutely have no talent whatsoever. And so it was very frustrating because I did try. Um, I suppose I was in a few tiny you know, student productions. And the thing that happened was that I would always have a picture in my head of what I wanted my body to do, what I wanted my voice to do, and my body and voice just simply refused to cooperate. Um, so I just stood there looking ridiculous. So I very quickly moved into, I loved, I like practical things, I like making things, I like doing things, so I really enjoyed building the sets, I never did costumes, had no, no ability for that, but I like rigging the lights, I like designing the lights, I like the sound. This is, this is years ago, so we still had quarter-inch tape for the sound. So you'd record the soundtrack on the quarter-inch tape, splice it all together, at the, you know, and inevitably it would break at least once during the show and you'd have to repair it. You know, I liked all of that practical stuff, I liked the directing and the producing, but absolutely 
and utterly devoid of talent at acting. <laughs> I'd love to play Lear. I'm seeing Lear next week, actually, um, in London with uh, one of my favourite actors, Kenneth Branagh. But, you know, I, I don't think that... Uh, <laughs> Rummy Lear we could do. Yeah, Peaky Blinder Lear we could do. No, not in Alabama, only in England. Right. Brummy is applies to people from Birmingham. Yes, ma'am. So two things. One, what's it like seeing your books being turned into two movies and a TV series? <laughs> and then I'm curious how to word it. Tom Cruise and Alan Richardson are so different. Do you yeah. have something you enjoyed or disliked or anything about either? Well, you know, I, th I feel like I can answer that completely honestly because um, I haven't been involved with the TV or the movies. That's entirely my brother. Um, so I've got, I've got no dog in that fight. Um, I, I, I view it purely as a, as a Reacher fan. And um, I think that it's, you know, I think that um, I, I, there were some issues with the movies. You know, a lot of people pin those issues on Tom Cruise and particularly on his size. And, you know, there's no getting away from it. He wasn't as tall. But there were things that Tom Cruise really got right in those movies. You know, Tom really understood Reacher's character. And there was there's a particular scene in the first movie where Reacher is sitting in a diner in the little town that he winds up in, wanting to be left alone so that he could just eat his burger and go home. And, uh, you know, of course, the local bad guys are wanting to provoke him into a fight. So they send this woman in to needle him so that he would respond and they had an, an excuse to jump on him. And there's a particular moment when Tom Cruise just looks up and he totally captures that world weary, you know, I'm not looking for trouble, but if you start it, I'm sure as hell going to finish it. And so he really did get the character, and there was nothing that could be done about the size thing, but he really did get the character. But the bigger problem for me with the movies is that, I don't know how you guys feel, but a lot of people have said to me that what they love about Reacher, they love thinking along with Reacher. You know, Reacher is presented with this really complicated puzzle on the surface, it seems insolvable. But Reacher peels back the layers one after another, like peeling an onion until finally he figures it out. And you need time to do that. In a movie, by the time you take off the beginning, you know, the credits and all of that other stuff, you've maybe got 90 minutes. And there simply is not time to work through Reacher's process. And so I felt that what you wound up with was something a little bit cartoonish, you know? Where is the thing hidden in this room? You don't have, you know, 45 minutes for Reacher to figure it out. It's just like, oh, it's probably behind those books over there, you know? It seems ridiculous. So in the TV, you have what is it, eight episodes a season? You have all of that time, so you can explore everything properly. And not only can you explore all of the, the stuff in the plot, there's a thing that's really critical to pace. You know, people will often in TV or movies or thrillers will respond to things that they feel are fast-paced. And what I believe in really strongly is if you want something to be fast-paced, you also need parts of it that are slow. Because if everything is fast, nothing is fast. You have to have the contrast. And again, you can do that when you're dealing with eight episodes and you have all of that airtime. And then, of course, the icing on the cake is Alan Richardson because he really does. He gets Reacher. He looks like Reacher ought to look. And so you, you, know, you remove that, that 
stumbling block, which is people saying, wait a minute, he's supposed to be big, what's going on? And so, you know, Alan does a great job. And something that, that came up that we didn't know about initially was, you know, one of the things with Reacher is not only is he enormous and strong, he is also very, very smart and thoughtful. And he's always looking ahead. He can always see several moves ahead. And it turned out that Alan is actually, when he was younger, was actually a really accomplished chess player. And, you know, Lee always said, there's just something about this guy. I can't quite put my finger on it, but he, he kind of gets that way Reacher thinks. And what we realized was, yeah, well, of course he does, because he was used to thinking like a chess player. So he really does combine, you know, the physical and the mental aspects. She went back to the and bought some of his yeah, that's a great question, whether we've been involved with Diane Capri and her series. And, um, you know, I know Diane well. She's a really good friend, and the books that she writes are fantastic, but um, I haven't had any, any direct involvement with them. I'm not familiar with her work, so that's why I'm looking at you blankly. Sorry. Yeah. Ugh. What yeah. What's it called? Diana Capri. Yeah. Okay. And what's she writing? Fan fiction, so to speak? Huh. Oh, okay. Well, it is fan fiction then, in a way. Yeah, in the same way that Fifty Shades of Grey was actually fan fiction for Twilight, um, it does happen that, you know, people can... I know, it's a very fine line, too. I have, I have very mixed feelings about that kind of thing. <laughs> well, that's not the mixed feeling that I have, <laughs> whether it's good or bad. Um, but we'll leave it at that. And thank you for pointing it out. Well, I want to thank all of you for coming tonight and for your attention. Thank you, virtual audience, for joining us. And thank you, Andrew, for a really nifty presentation. So, yay. <laughs> Hello. We hope you're enjoying our programs and podcasts with authors. We'd like to expand them, and your help would be appreciated. Please make a donation at poisonedpenfoundation.org. 100% of the proceeds will go to help connect authors with readers in this difficult time. Thank you.